2: From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are starting a handful of episodes that will explore the maritime history of Africa. And today we begin with the fascinating story of African canoemen. African indigenous seafaring canoemen operated as middlemen between European traders and their arriving ships and the coastal estuaries, rivers and land of West Africa. The topography of the coast often necessitated their involvement in trade because it was variably rocky, broken by sandbars and shallow waters or treacherous in other ways to ships. Canoe men allowed access to trade by using surf boats that could surmount the waves on the coast in ways that European boats could not. They often were hired as navigators and pilots on European ships, or worked as menial laborers or ordinary seamen on European ships. Canoe men also frequently came alongside European ships to board them and trade goods or enslaved people. As a result, when Europeans began to build trading entrepots such as Almina Castle in Ghana, Monrovia in Liberia or Cap Verde in Senegal, they hired canoemen to contract out trade. To find out more about this little-known aspect of African maritime history, I spoke with Megan Crutcher, a PhD student in the Nautical Archaeology Programme of Texas A&M University. Now, Megan is looking into the roles, identities and material culture of these canoe men in West African maritime history, especially during the 15th to the 19th centuries. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoy talking with her. Here is the excellent Megan. Megan, thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Thank you, Sam. It is a pleasure to be here.
2: So... um. How did you become interested in this subject of African uh, canoemen? men?
3: Um, I think part of it was an accidental research trajectory and part of it comes from um, my background in public history and uh, especially concerned with heritage politics and access and inclusivity in um, cultural heritage. Um, so when I started my Ph.D. program, I thought that I would be moving in that direction, sort of more a general heritage conservation and preservation direction. Um, and obviously, as you do a Ph.D., you really have to narrow that focus a lot. Um, so I was looking specifically at um, very broad very broad brushstrokes African maritime heritage um, and preservation and conservation. And then in the course of doing that, I sort of pivoted a little bit, seeing like in all of the scholarship that I was reading and all of these books, seeing at least somewhat of a gap in the knowledge in terms of like indigenous African seafaring traditions. A lot of the like onus was placed on Europeans and colonial history. And so I was seeing sort of this gap and seeing how that tied in with like heritage preservation and specifically like, um, you know, preservation of what's typically been marginalized stories and things like that. Um, I started to get really interested in it. And then, you know, doing all of these literature uh, surveys and, and looking at all of the research that's out there, I was seeing this This gap in terms of the history specifically of West African um, maritime history and West African um, indigenous traditions in terms of seafaring and sailing. It's
2: quite exciting when that happens, when you suddenly realise there is a gap. And I think it's it's worth saying that a lot of the listeners out there might think that maritime research is quite... Well any historical research is quite straightforward is that you think about doing ABC and you do ABC but it never happens you end up doing FY and Z. Exactly. Um, it, you know it's a continuous process of wonderful discovery isn't it?
3: That's true. I think a lot of it is like building on sort of basic building blocks and then sort of beefing that out to be something more novel or maybe bringing attention to something that hasn't been brought attention before in terms of you know West African maritime history um i think a lot of people like especially in maritime history maritime archaeology a lot of people tend to focus on Europeans and Americans because that's a lot of the documentary sources we have but I think that's also a general trajectory in the field of archaeology right like we you know people started out looking at at ancient archaeology and Greece and Rome and Egypt and there wasn't as much focus on um African archaeology and and African history on its own terms and so I think it's sort of a broader trend maybe of of focus on um African history and African maritime history on on its own terms.
2: Yeah it's interesting what you're saying because it's um reflected in what I've discovered recently by talking to curators and historians who work at uh in Australia and New Zealand. And so they have a, a similar problem. So a lot of the actual written history is written by Europeans, mm-hmm. but and, and they're they're constantly fighting a sense that the indigenous peoples who lived in New Zealand and Australia were, were land people. Yeah, but they weren't at all. And I think this, it's very similar to what you're you're addressing here in Africa that you you're you're shining a light on the, the maritime aspects of this kind of. Um, you know, long established culture. So wh- why were African canoes and canoemen important?
3: Um, I sort of want to move away from the defining them in terms of importance related to Europeans. Um, but a lot of the reason that African canoe men have been focused on in history is because of their roles in European trade and contact with the continent of Africa. Um, Canoemen served as intermediaries between european ships and coastal communities so um, all of the trade that was carried out specifically in the regions of like sierra leone liberia ghana um, sort of more on the southern coast of west africa all of the trade that was carried out um, prior to really european colonization of the area was via these canoes and these intermediaries coming out to the European ships and trading, um, goods as well as enslaved people. Um, and these were really the only way for Europeans to access that landed trade because of the way that the coastal topography is and the way that the, the surf and the beaches are, um, It was really difficult for Europeans to sort of access the coast because um, their ships, longboats and uh, sort of smaller boats that they would use typically to access the coast for trade weren't able to sort of surmount the the giant waves in these areas and so they relied on these intermediaries that had this long-standing tradition of going out to sea and fishing or going along the the west african coast and trading with other groups Um, so the europeans sort of relied on them to conduct trade Um, and this is also not Just a coastal phenomenon Uh, within West Africa, like within the entire region, there are huge river networks and um, most of the interior trade was carried out via these river networks and via canoe portage. So not only do you have the trans-Saharan trade routes of like salt and gold and enslaved people, but you also have these massive river networks and maritime trade routes within the, like the interior of West Africa, not just on the coast. Um, so if you're looking at West African history and economics and even politics and culture, like you can't overlook the roles that these people played because, um, they were so important before Europeans came in terms of trade and commerce and cultural interactions. And then once Europeans came, they were also just as important to establishing those trade relationships as well.
2: Mm. I mean, we talk about them; how their, their importance, their social, cultural, economic, but they were also important in um, warfare as well, in in, in in between indigenous societies.
3: Yes, yes. Um, there are some accounts of war canoes in, I believe it's the Gulf of Guinea, um, but some accounts of war canoes carrying like 80, 100, 120 warriors in the canoe. Um, and these are mostly like early Portuguese sources. So whether or not it's actually a canoe, um, you know, there's some debate there. But these like massive war boats being used. Um, internally, like not just against Europeans, although they were used against Europeans, um, but also being used internally to conduct naval warfare.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? I like the idea of the, the importance of the rivers as well, because um the boatmanship, I won't say seamanship, the boatmanship, <laughs> the skill involved in, in using boats in rivers is um, similar to that in using... Uh, using them in in maritime spaces near the coast, mm-hmm. and that's obviously why they were so so uh, so important. Um, and I, I like the also the difference between you know making a difference between the canoes themselves as as a physical object and a location, and the canoe men mm. who were the kind of cultural I don't know uh, interact as brokers between yeah. the Europeans. Let's talk about the canoes themselves. What do we know first about about them? I mean. Uh, how were they made? Were they made differently in different places? What's the kind of, you know, sort of general history of these canoes?
3: I'll start with the were they made differently in different places? Um, because they were, and a lot of different groups have different um, sort of markers or ornamentation for different canoes or boats. Um, for example, in Senegal, there's, um, they call, pirogues, uh, which is the French word for canoe, but there are pirogues that are heavily ornamented and have um, these beautiful designs on them. Uh, And there's an excellent work from, I think, the 70s on Nyominka uh, pirogue ornaments. And then um, you have other groups like in the Bisagos Islands off of uh, West Africa, you've got um, these canoes where they basically have giant longhorn cattle heads as rams on the front for like maritime war and it's really cool um like they're really intimidating i'm sure if i was trying to go up against these people i would be very intimidated um and so there's definitely these regional variations in the ways that canoes are decorated in the shapes that they take um In some of the early European sources, especially the Portuguese, uh, they'll talk about different shapes of canoes, and in some areas of the coast they'll say they look like weavers' shuttles, or in other areas they'll say they just look like a standard dugout canoe. (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, they weren't super descriptive in terms of, um, you know, the very construction details, I'll say. But in terms of construction, uh, I will point to um, Kevin Dawson's book Undercurrents of Power that just came out in 2021 um, because he's got some excellent uh, artistic and iconographic representations of canoes and even some that look like plank built boats. Um, And those are from historic sources that are pretty rare. Uh, so that's a great source um, under Currents of Power by Kevin Dawson. But in terms of the shape and the construction of these canoes, it was argued for a long time that in the Americas specifically, um, Native Americans taught enslaved Africans how to build dugout canoes. Um, but when you look at the difference between indigenous African canoes and Native American canoes, they're both dugouts. Um, But Native American dugouts tend to have blunter ends, whereas indigenous African dugouts tend to be much more tapered on the ends. And even some are um, like tapered in and then sort of have like a dovetail handle on the ends for portage. Um, And then in terms of the way they were constructed. both are dugouts, so they're made from a hollowed out log, but the the tools that were used were different. And then um, whether or not fire was used to sort of harden the hull inside the dugout um, also differed, especially between Native Americans and indigenous Africans, but even within Africa itself. Um, so most of the canoes we're looking at are, what we'll say like traditional dugout canoes. Um, but they're made from mostly cottonwood trees or these really large trees in the coastal areas uh, and then hollowed out with either iron or stone tools uh, to be pretty thin at least in terms of like the the thickness of the wood some are even reported to be half an inch thick um which is which is pretty insane to me um but it some makes of, them light to carry them, you know. Exactly. That's, that's
2: the purpose of that, isn't it? Yeah.
3: Exactly. It makes them light for portage, um, and then in terms of surf boats, like to surmount those those giant waves on the coast, it makes them almost more like a surfboard or a paddleboard, uh, and so it's easier to navigate those giant waves because you're not dealing with sort of a a cumbersome plank-built boat. You're dealing with more of like a a boat, yes, but
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com sign up with code program for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale no long-term commitments or contracts that's stamps.com code program
2: so something that's easily maneuverable did any of them have kind of outriggers to give them more stability in the surf
3: some did um but i'm not entirely sure where and when that was the case. There were a lot of different regional variations. Um so at least my I would hypothesize that it was based more on the use and function of like when they needed to uh they would, you know, t- lash canoes together or put outriggers, but most of the time paddles were used to stabilize uh the canoe. And
2: does this um boat building tradition now survive in coastal communities. This is gonna lead me on to talking about how you study this.
3: It does. Um it does, and it's been affected of course by the long trajectory of West African history and of contact with Europeans and of being colonized throughout the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Um but there are a lot of coastal communities that still build and use these kinds of surf boats that still use canoes or pirogues in Senegal. Um, there is a huge tradition of fishing across West Africa, um, but especially in Ghana, the use of these sort of traditional um, canoes and fishing vessels is really prevalent and there are Uh, guilds, basically, of fishermen and um, boat builders that sort of form into these houses uh, still today. Um, And so it is still really prevalent, the use and construction of, we'll say, like traditional watercraft as opposed to, you know, like a metal, a metal rowboat or something like that. Mm.
2: And are there written sources? Are there pictures? I mean, how else do you get into the history of these craft?
3: There are written sources. um, And I'll say, especially for the early European uh, ingress to Africa, the written sources typically tend to give a throwaway line about canoes or they'll give a throwaway line about, you know, 80 guys in a canoe came to our ship to trade. And you're like, wait, back up. 80 80 guys in a canoe came to trade with your ship? Like, can you go into more detail? And of course, because it's, you know, the early European authors, they're like, no, no more detail. We are continuing on, navigation only, that's all you get. Um, So that's really the early sources. And then once you get into European colonization of the continent, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, you start to see a lot more discussion of um, canoes and, and canoe men. And I will say it's not all men. Um, There are also women uh, heavily established in maritime traditions in Africa. Um, Canoe men is just sort of a shorthand for the people who use these boats. Um, So that does not leave out women. I will say that. Um, But later on you start to get um, the colonial officials interacting with these groups and sort of hiring them out as trade brokers and um, the canoe men actually form a very unified labor force in terms of being able to strike for better conditions and wages. Um, and they're afforded some, like, privileges under the colonial government that other groups aren't. Um, so there are a lot more sources when we get into, like, the really heavy period of European colonization. Um, and then a lot of these have you know, pictorial depictions of canoes and people using them um, within those sources.
2: I love that aspect of of the history of, of canoemen being actually an important history of uh, African labour.
0: Yes. African,
2: you know, the African labour movement. That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and what, ab- what about these canoes as a as a kind of location for history? I'm fascinated by this. The idea of them being a marketplace, a place for exchange of goods or ideas? How do you get into that? Uh,
3: I think that is a really important question. Um, And I, obviously, in the second year of my PhD, I am sort of getting into these questions um, and developing them more and fleshing them out. Um, But I think in terms of the canoes themselves being a space for this, I think it follows the rest of maritime history right we talk a lot about boats and ships being a space for this interaction or clash or um contact or or development of new ideas and i think um that can also be applied to canoes as as watercraft just like boats, um, I don't think there's really a difference between the way we approach that in European seafaring and European spaces and in these as well.
2: You know, I, I totally agree with you, and I think I think the passage of time's an important part of that. So don't just think about these canoes as being vehicles for quick voyages. Yes quick little journeys from the shore out to an anchored european ship i mean people spent time they probably lived in them and wherever you have the location for people passing time and living then then um, that itself becomes significant Um, i'm also really interested by the skills that they acquired and when it comes to them um the enslaved africans going across to the caribbean or to america then they surely brought those maritime skills with them
3: they absolutely did, and um, that is not necessarily my specialty. I'm looking more at the African side, but there are quite a few scholars looking at the American side. Um, Kevin Dawson, who I mentioned before, is looking especially at um, American uh, canoes and enslaved Africans' use of canoes and watery spaces generally. Um, and so I would point everyone to, to his works. Um but those traditions were transported across with the middle passage right the the horrors of slavery were not enough to get rid of this skill and this maritime um tradition that people carried with them and i think that that's a really cool story of resiliency and um and and strength in the face of the horrors of slavery yeah and do we know uh, any i
2: mean we... We've not been talking about specific people yet. We haven't mentioned any names. Mm. Is it possible to get into the, you know, the personal history of these people who were canoemen? Do we know 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 any names? Know any personal backgrounds?
3: The bulk of the very personal individual stories come from the crew, um, who were one of. Probably the best documented by European sources, Um, the best documented group of these canoemen were the crew. uh, And they traditionally came from Liberia and then migrated to Sierra Leone and across West Africa and even to the UK, to India, to the US, um, mostly employed in maritime spaces. And um, a lot of the the sort of human stories come from um, whether it's court uh, court testimony or parliamentary papers come from the crew, um, and that's mostly from British sources. But a really difficult part of doing this research is that there aren't a lot of written historical records that document the voices of these canoemen. Um, they're sort of homogenized in all of the the European records, and so looking for individuals and looking for the people and their voices can be really difficult. Um, There's quite a few researchers who've done oral histories um, in some of these areas, specifically Ghana and Liberia. Um, But I just haven't gotten, you know, that far in terms of my research. I'm relying on their oral histories that they've already taken uh, of descendant communities.
2: Yeah, well, fantastic. I wish you all the the luck in the world. Thank you. It's going to be a very exciting project. Megan, thank you very much indeed for talking to me today.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please make sure that this is not the last thing you do to interact with our fabulous podcast. In particular, I want to urge you all to check out the brilliant video content that we are also creating. You can find that at the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page as well as on Instagram and TikTok. Our latest fantastical creations are an animation of Preusson, an enormous five-masted 19th century sailing ship that came to a very sticky end, a video in which we explain her very complex rigging. And also, we have an animation coming soon of one of my favourite craft in all of maritime history, the Cleopatra, a unique iron, it's a sort of floating coffin, and it was used to transport an ancient Egyptian obelisk back from Egypt to the banks of the Thames. Uh, These will be coming out shortly, but for now, there is a stunning back catalogue of innovative videos for you to enjoy. Please remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for North School Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation, so please check out what those great institutions are doing the snr at snr.org.uk where you can join up i would urge you all to do so it's great value for money and immensely beneficial and you can also find the history and education center of the lloyds register foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk